You're listening to From the Inside Out, a podcast series from USA Learning Lab. International development is a complex process, and we don't always get it right. But here at USA Learning Lab, we believe that we all have a role in improving organizational effectiveness and ultimately achieving better development outcomes. Our goal for this series is to empower USAID staff and partners to change the way they work. So we're sharing research and practical tips on how you can collaborate, learn, and adapt to help USAID achieve better development outcomes. Evidence-based decision-making is a powerful tool for transforming USAID from the inside out. In this episode, we'll talk about where we see this happening in other industries and why it can be challenging at USAID. We'll also discuss two examples of innovative learning initiatives at USAID Missions. Good morning, Ian and Stacy. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Ian, where do we see evidence-based decision-making happening in other industries? In the business sector, the closest corollary to that is uh, philosophies and methodologies like agile management or lean production or similarly Six Sigma. And the main commonality among those really is the intentional collection of data and information related to processes and outcomes to inform decision-making related to processes. Evidence exists in a, in a variety of places that demonstrates the organizational performance benefits of this approach, um, in, including improved financial project management and health-related outcomes. Um, two important phenomena follow this transformation. First, the production system becomes a transparent one in which problems can no longer be hidden. So that's you're, you're collecting a lot of data and information all the time, and you're using that to adjust on the fly as you go. So you're not waiting for the product life cycle to end before you find that. You're constantly aware of what's going on so that you can make those small adjustments as needed. Basically, the gist is that you're monitoring all of these factors at once, and it allows you to reduce extra spending and have a better sense of what your uh, portfolio looks like. I think those are some really interesting points. The transparency is important, the transparency that you get when you're monitoring so that you can identify where the bottlenecks are or where the problems might be. Um, I remember talking with somebody once who said, if you were in business, you'd be crazy if you didn't check your bottom line more than once a year. Speaking to the sometimes slower pace of monitoring in international development and if we're not complementing things like you know quarterly or annual reporting with um, tight feedback loops that enable us to, in a more timely fashion, understand what we're seeing and, and feed that back into decision making, then we can get ourselves in trouble. At the same time, there are some real differences between manufacturing and development. And one of the differences is that whereas manufacturing tries to replicate the manufacturing process across multiple factories once they get it working, we know that that doesn't work very well in international development, even when we have a practice that has proven successful in one context, let alone the the problem of not always knowing what we should be doing in the first place. And so the need to to do more testing and uh, manage adaptively so that we can iterate and shift quickly toward things that seem to be working a little bit better. So I think there are some real um, lessons there and also uh, other questions that remain for us. Mm -hmm. 
I was just thinking as you're saying that, Stacy, it, it makes total sense to do this if you're working in in manufacturing or another sector with a that's producing a, a tangible product because you would be silly to not keep your costs down because that's money that you could be reinvesting in additional products or scale up or what have you. And right. it's, but it's easy, like you were saying, to do that because there's only so many things that you can monitor at that time. It's like, what are storage costs? What are commodity costs? What is overhead of staff, uh, R&D costs? That's very, mm-hmm. Those are very fixed when you are on the outset mm-hmm. that don't necessarily replicate to monitoring someone's access to clean water or <laughs> reducing maternal child mortality or education. Um, but that's not to say that it's not equally as important to be doing that along the way. Absolutely. Like you said. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that everybody at USAID and among our implementing partners understands that we monitor and we evaluate in order to make evidence-based informed decisions about our programs. Sometimes accomplishing the spirit of that can be difficult. As usual, one of the main problems is time. Often because monitoring feeds both learning and decision-making and reporting, we invest a lot in monitoring and gathering data. And then when the time crunch comes, we need to opt to spend our time on using the data for reporting, which is required. And sometimes that comes at the expense of being able to actually synthesize the data understand the implications for our programs and use that to inform the the timely decisions that we need to make in the course of implementation as well as in uh, design processes. What are some other barriers to learning from monitoring and evaluation? One problem we have is that we uh, can tend to equate supply of monitoring data or supply of evaluations with actual learning and actual use of uh, what we're getting out of monitoring and evaluation. But there's so much more to learning and um, in implementing the learning that we have in, in the course of our programs than just having access to evaluations. You know, we talk a lot about the 80 page report versus the easily digestible knowledge product. Um, the fact is we need both. The 80-page report has the depth of information that we need to really understand how development works and so on. But we also need the time to read the 80-page report and also to talk about it with our colleagues and understand, you know, what does this mean in our context? What does it mean for our programs? And then from there, say, okay, if if what we're getting out of this evaluation or, or some other um, source of data points us in a different direction. How do we get from here to there? This is this is a point I know that I've re- returned to several times in this series because it's so important. We often find ourselves standing in one place and seeing that we need to be in another place, but not really knowing what the path is from, from the one to the other and having to break that down and, and figure out how we're going to get from here to there. All of that takes time. Uh, a, a third constraint, of course, is the capacity to make sense of monitoring data and evaluation findings, and that it can also be in shorter supply than what we would like. Uh, And here, um, we're lucky when we have um, strong 
robust monitoring and evaluation and learning platforms, and we can get support on that. Um, but nonetheless, there are sometimes capacity constraints in our ability to make good use of the monitoring and evaluations that we're conducting. I think one key point to remember is about the emphasis on use. So what is the utility of whatever it is that we are tracking, reading, seeking to learn, and and really getting practical with that? Because, I, I mean, obviously there's a ton of things that everybody wants to learn, but if it's not if it's not even achievable in the, the context you're working in, it's okay to not necessarily track that because then you're going to feel like you haven't made any progress. And so just thinking before developing any of that, like what is the use for this and what will it inform in the future? Yeah, and looking at it, you know, from the other direction, asking not only is it usable, but who will use this? Who needs this information? And, and there I think it's so important that we think beyond USAID to think about local stakeholders. What are the knowledge needs there? What will help local actors be able to take on a, a stronger role in their own development processes? What kinds of knowledge can we help generate to inform the work that they want to do? This feeds back into creating an environment where it's, it's okay to fail or change or admit that you did not succeed in something. And oftentimes, monitoring indicators will be determined or evaluations will be written in a in a way that praises work but um, was kind of nefarious in its creation. And so by creating a space where it's like, it's okay if you start tracking something and then recognize that that's the wrong thing to track and make the change and document how you made the change and say, we, we held a pause and reflect moment here and we decided to change course. And then the evaluation will incorporate that and say, we hit a we hit a pivotal moment where we had to change and and we saw it change for the better or we learned that or we learned an unintended outcome that we weren't expecting to see and that informs something else and it's making it clear that it's okay to be in that kind of experimental um, it's safe environment yeah definitely that's so important and I want to give a plug here to the work that we're doing through our R&D for M&E hub um, and some of this work people will know as the complexity aware monitoring work, but we've got other things going on as well to really grapple with. If you believe, as we have established in the ADS program cycle guidance at USAID, that working adaptively will in many cases help us do better development, then you need to figure out how you monitor adaptively. And so this speaks to your point about being willing to change what you're monitoring and and, um, and and thereby making it easier to change what you're actually doing. People can get hung up on not wanting to course correct in the implementation because their baseline data is set to a set of indicators that will no longer be relevant if they change course. And so some of the um, approaches that have already been established, but then also some of the things that we're working on through the R&D for M&E Hub and the work that we're doing in partnership with DFID through the Global Learning for Adaptive Management Initiative, all of those point to this question of how we further support adaptability in, in development programming by shaping our monitoring to fit that. So let's talk for a moment about local participation in learning from ME. 
I remember that our research on the evidence base for collaborating, learning, and adapting uncovered some research on local communities' participation in that. Ian, can you share the findings of that report? So this information comes from a 2016 report called Is Feedback Smart? published by Feedback Labs. And it pertains to the evidence we've seen for feedback loops in the area of community-based monitoring. And the report outlines the ways in which feedback loops have directly and indirectly contributed to development outcomes. In one study, they mention um, a citizen's report card in Uganda led to a 16% increase in utilization of health facilities and a 33% reduction in under five child mortality. So by incorporating these opportunities to provide feedback and make those changes along the way, they were able to achieve those results. In another experiment, also in Uganda, a report card initiative that allowed constituents to design their own indicators outperformed the standard one. Researchers attribute the success of the participatory scorecard to the fact that it encouraged participants to constructively frame the problem by identifying the underlying causes, such as teacher assignments, housing, and so on, and not just the symptoms, like teacher absenteeism. So giving them more ownership of what affects them, and then that helps us achieve the better results. There's plenty of data that suggests that the data you collect will be better if the partners who are collecting it are also invested in its quality. So if they have a role in um, deciding what data they'll be collecting, then uh, you'll definitely get to better quality data. And so obviously if they're using the data, they're using it for development efforts that presumably they're invested in. And so that's part of the self-reliance picture, right? Having um, local actors driving their development agenda, having the monitoring or evaluation or, or really any other form of inquiry that we're engaged in also supporting their work is going to improve the quality, improve the utilization, and improve local ownership and self-reliance. So I'd like to talk about a couple of examples from USAID missions and how they are learning from their monitoring and evaluation. And I like both of the examples that we're about to talk about because of the way that they use feedback loops. They're really strategic about making sure that the right information goes to the right people at the right time. And um, so the first example that we'll talk about is from USAID Morocco, and this was a finalist in last year's CLA case competition. Um, and their case was called USAID Morocco's State of the Mission Address Improving Feedback Loops. So in essence, what this mission has done is they have closed a feedback loop by holding a presentation called their State of the Mission Address to report back to implementing partners on their annual reports. The presentation is focused on explaining how the mission uses the information provided in the reports and also shares powerful examples from those reports on learning and adaptive management. And it allows staff and partners to learn more about what each of their partners are doing. And they also think it serves as an inspiration for implementing partners to improve the quality of the information they're providing in their quarterly and annual reports, which I think is a really, really good idea when you're trying to incentivize quality information coming in from your partners. I love this example because it goes even further than learning from monitoring and evaluation to learning from accountability and reporting, right? Uh, because we're, we're seeing an example at, at the Morocco mission of 
the mission taking these reports, which partners do typically approach from a reporting accountability frame, and really using them to inform everybody at the mission and all of the partners. And also, as you mentioned, Amy, to improve the quality of the reporting to further support learning. So I think it's a it's a great example of a learning activity, the kind of CLA effort that wraps around these basic processes that makes them much more meaningful, much more accessible, much more likely to guide programmatic decision making. There's two things that struck me with this. One is in the reporting cycle can often feel, especially with that accountability and reporting compliance angle, can feel like the reports are submitted and never seen again, which is one of the main things that we (laughs) unlearn and with the CLA team are trying to uh, disprove. The the black hole problem? The the black hole where, okay, here's our 80-page report, we submitted it, we're done. And it it shows the the partners that actually these are meaningful. We have read them. They are important. Everyone can learn from everyone else's evaluation. And this is a great uh, participatory way, one that recognizes partners collectively, individually, and in a public way, um, that these are to be used. And everyone can learn from each other's. Um, which feeds into the next point that struck me of of the mission of USAID Morocco really um, modeling CLA behavior. They recognize this opportunity to bring these things together and share back with everybody. And and that coming from the mission is sending a message to the partners that this is how we need to be collaborating together. There are multiple partners here. They're all working on similar things with similar processes. It's okay that we're sharing. It's better that we're sharing because it all feeds up into us achieving the, the same better result. Yeah, that's right, Ian. And also, just to um, put this effort in broader context, that mission is doing great work on both CLA and uh, local ownership. And so, you know, for anybody who wants to look under the hood a little bit and explore other CLA work that the Morocco mission is engaged in, they have really pushed the envelope working through their local works program at the mission on working with local partners. Um, They've conducted listening tours. They're doing a lot of co-creation. And so so putting this in that broader context, this is one of the ways that the mission is using a CLA approach to really support locally-led development in Morocco. Yeah, I'll just read their response on the case competition submission form to the question about impact. Um, They say that the simple act of reporting back to partners on their annual reports has garnered positive results. It has helped increase transparency as to what USAID does with the information that is provided to us. It demonstrated USAID's commitment to partnership and our deep interest in what our partners are doing and have to say. After the state of the mission presentation, several partners noted how affirming it was to find out how many people read their reports and that the information did not just disappear into a black hole, echoing what you guys were talking about. A majority of the partners reported that it was extremely useful to see concrete ideas on how to improve results. Partners also expressed appreciation to learn how 
other partners are imp- incorporating adaptive management into their projects. This process was an excellent way to shine the spotlight on the good work that our partners are doing, provide public appreciation for their work, and continue to increase understanding of CLA. We also fully anticipate that by sharing best practices, we'll, we'll see an improvement in the quality of future annual reports. Perhaps most importantly, USAID staff and partners across the sectors knows that they learned a great deal about other activities, and because of that, they've seen an increase in collaboration between several of the partners as a result of this process. All as a result of something very simple and straightforward. This doesn't seem like it was such a heavy lift for them. You know, it's not like they decided to have a week-long retreat or something like that. Like, I think that in terms of resourcing, this probably wasn't too much of a significant investment, but definitely had a lot of positive results. This is an example of building in a pause and reflect opportunity so that the reports can achieve their intended purpose. You know, I think partners' concerns that those reports go unread isn't altogether misplaced and not because nobody cares about what's in them, but because those pause and reflect moments aren't built in and the the daily rush of work doesn't always allow for mission staff to really fully absorb what's in the reports. And so by establishing this practice where everybody comes together around the substance of what's in these reports, that requires mission staff and others to really absorb that content and reflect on it and makes it infinitely more likely that what is included in those reports will actually inform decision making. It goes back to that point about what's the use case of this, because you know what it's going to be used for. It's going to inform this meeting. It's going to be read by all of these other people and thinking about how to make the most of it while you're doing it instead of just just submit the report and let's move on. Right. And, and presumably also in a context where people are not talking just about here's what's in the report, but here's what that means for our programs. And so making that pivot from uh, you know, looking backward at what happened to looking forward at what the implications are for what, the work that we'll be doing. With that, I'd like to transition to another example. This one was a winner in the 2017 CLA case competition, and it's from USA Jordan's program office titled, No One Can Know Everything, Collaborating for Better Evaluation Recommendations. And they talked about how in June 2016, they decided that while their systems were producing strong evaluations, there must be a way to further enhance the utility of the final recommendations for learning and subsequent adaptive management. So their program office elected to use the lens of CLA to review the then current evaluation processes to see how they could be improved. And what they ended up doing was developing a workshop to add to their overall evaluation process where evaluation stakeholders would collaboratively co-generate the final recommendations after the evaluators had finalized their key findings and conclusions. As a result of all the stakeholders' openness to this continuous learning and improvement, the workshops, which were attended by a long list of stakeholders, including USA's technical managers, evaluation team members, program office staff, staff from the ME Support Project, resulted in perceived improvements to the utility of the final recommendations without undermining the integrity of the evaluation process. More useful recommendations are expected to facilitate more efficient and effective utilization of the evaluation results for adaptive management. 
first of all, I just really like in this case how they took their time to recognize that their evaluations weren't being utilized um, how they wanted to. And then, you know, in the previous episode, we talked about collaboration, having the right people at the table. And they, they really did. They sat down and they said, who are these people that need to be involved in this process and how can we bring them in at the right time? This is a really innovative example. One of the things that struck me about this case was kind of the crux of CLA and its behavior toward an approach like this, but also attitude. Um, they mentioned that their support contract was really willing to go down this path to try something new. You know, with something like this, there's always, you run the risk that you lose kind of your independence, especially as a support contract, but it was really kind of brought all together to, again, to focusing on the greater goal for everyone and, and really recognizing the importance of this. And that really makes a huge difference because the openness to trying something new and the attitude of like trying to get something done and then seeing results right away is, is really uh, great to hear. That's right. And, and they took a bit of a risk. You know, they had concerns that um, engaging in this co-creation of evaluation recommendations might somehow compromise the independence of the evaluation group, but they they weighed that against that realization that they weren't getting what they needed to get out of their evaluations, and they said, okay, you know, let's try this, and it turned out to work beautifully. So I think it's a great example for that reason as well. So Stacy, what advice do you have for someone who's listening to this and thinking about the hundreds of indicators that they're collecting information on and the fact that they are not using their their monitoring and evaluation very effectively. What what What's the first step in getting their um, priorities right? Sure. Thanks. Great question. Um, the first step is to not have hundreds of indicators. So to really cut back, um, if you are USAID funded, then have another look at the program cycle guidance. We've reduced the required indicators, and we've said that people should, you know, in essence, just be uh, monitoring the things that are important. And so um, really shifting our expectations from thou shalt monitor everything that is worthy of monitoring to thou shalt monitor that which is most important uh, as a way to get to um, what you can really get your arms around. So that that's one thing. Just, you know, the sheer quantity is overwhelming for a lot of people. Another piece of the puzzle has to do with the capacity to analyze the monitoring data. And so making sure that somewhere on your team you have somebody who can make sense of it all. Uh, third, building in the processes um, to really synthesize and grapple with the monitoring data. And then fourth, taking the steps to follow through so that you're adapting based on what you're learning. So that's a wrap for this episode. Curious about what we meant by pause and reflect? Listen to our fifth and final episode in this series to learn why it's worth it for individuals and teams to stop and think about the results they're achieving. All of the research in this episode comes from our area of work on the evidence base for collaborating, learning, and adapting. To learn more, visit usaidlearninglab.org slash eb, the number four, CLA. The USA Learning Lab podcast is a production of the USA Learn Contract, implemented by Dexas Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in the Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. 
The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Pottington Bear.